Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? Okay. Well, I'm glad I was welcomed back. That means I made the cut. You guys all voted and said, yep, we can have this guy back, so hope to not disappoint you. Um, yes, as Fletcher said, I um, was a pastor of a church uh, in Malden. I currently work for a tech company, not in Cambridge, those suck. The ones in Boston are awesome. That's the one I work for. I actually work with Carter over here. I recognize his face. Um, yeah, I've lived in Malden for 14 years, moved there in 2009. I think I've known Fletcher for maybe for a decade. When have you moved here? So I've, yeah, I've known you for a little, around a decade. Um, and yeah, currently yeah, in that space. Uh, I have four children. Um, one of them is here, three of them are upstairs. I thought they were gonna come up here and sing that song that they haven't learned this week, but apparently they opted out. Um, but that was really cool, and um, yeah, my wife uh, works as a nurse here in the city, and uh, she's working right now. So I have the pleasure of hanging out with my kids, and they get to listen to me preach again, which is fun. When I told them that we were coming back to City on a Hill this morning, um, they were like, oh, I know that church. Is that the church with the bagels? <laughs> and I was like, yes. And they're like, woo, very excited. Uh, they, you guys made quite an impression. Uh, the bagels, the hospitality seemed to be on point. So very, um, yeah, very good decision. They love them. And so they think this is the church with the bagels. All right. Um, so let me just pray for us before we get into God's word. And um, just ask that he would speak during this time through his word to us. Let's pray. Father, we just pause. And we want to recognize that this time would mean nothing if you're not here. The time where we open up the word as a people of God in your presence will be worthless if you don't speak. So we want to open up our ears, we want to soften our hearts and ask that you speak to us, mold us and shape us by these words through the prophet Isaiah. May you speak a word of truth to us, may those words land in fertile soil, and may they bear the good fruit of the Spirit. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Oftentimes, the solution to a problem is not uh, easily found on the surface. You got to dig deeper, right? Um, several years ago, so I consider myself a handyman. Any handyman in here, like, or handy women, anyone that's like, yeah, I got this. I YouTube and Google a lot, and I never call anyone to help me. Raise your hand. Come on. 
There you go. Thank you. Um, several years ago, I was presented with this problem um, that looked easy on the surface, but uh, required actually much more than I had originally bargained for. So like some of you, and actually I hope many more of you, uh, plan to own a home in this greater Boston area. And if you currently own a home or even rent a home, you know that these are turn of the century homes. Not 20th century, <laughs> 19th century, right? You, you realize you've bought something that's pretty old. And you know these homes have really strong bones. That's why they're still standing. But the internal guts, the, the wiring, maybe the plumbing, they have a lot to be desired. So one day, my upstairs bathroom had this sound that was, you guys probably already hear when I say this. It was a water just like slowly kind of leaking and then uh, keep, it kept going and going and going and then eventually just like crawls to a stop. So it's like But it does that for like not just the normal, you know, four or five seconds. It went on for four to five minutes, right? So DIY, handy women, handy men, what do you think that is? What do you think that would be? If you heard that sound in your bathroom, what do you think that would be? Come on. Nobody knows. Okay, cool. Um, if you heard that noise, you would, I immediately thought, okay, great, this is easy. There is uh, something wrong with kind of the, the, the uh, plumbing and it's got to get plunged because it just kept going and going and it wasn't just, it wasn't leaking. So I grabbed my tools, grabbed my pl uh, plunger and I plunged it. Not like the Mario plunger. You guys know what the Mario plunger looks like. I'm talking about like the really cool plunger that has like the little end on it. So I plunged and I, I, I used it and it didn't work. That was my first guess. So I was like, shoot. I consulted Google, consulted YouTube, and I was like, okay, well, maybe this is the fill valve or the float in my, the thing, the tank at the uh, end of it. So I went to Home Depot, bought a new uh, float, and um, I replaced it, didn't solve the issue. So I consulted Google again and YouTube again, and I realized, okay, maybe it's the fill valve. So I went on a second trip to Home Depot. You guys know what that is, right? You, don't, you can't go to Home Depot just once. You gotta go twice to get the right thing. So I went on a second trip, uh, and I tried to fix the fill valve, and it didn't work. So I was just frustrated at this point. Couldn't fix it. It wasn't a huge problem. It was just making this annoying noise. So I gave up for several days. Now, I don't wanna be too graphic here, but it became a problem over those several days because my house has two bathrooms and I live with four children in this house, and no matter how many tell, times you tell them, don't use this toilet, they don't understand what I'm saying, and they continue to use the toilet. So it became an emergency. Uh, I'm still stubborn, I'm, a, I'm gonna fix this guy, kind of guy, I googled some more, and um, I, I, I thought, okay, you know what? I'm gonna replace every single part of this toilet that I see. So I uh, went to Home Depot a third time. I bought all the valves, all the things, all the tubes. I replaced the uh, flexi hose, the flapper, the O-ring, whatever. I mean, maybe there's plumbers here, so you're like, you don't know what you're talking about. But um, I replaced all of those things. Everything that I could see with my eyes, I replaced, and nothing worked. And in a moment of desperation, I returned to Home Depot for a fourth time. <laughs> That was very stubborn, as you can see. Uh, and I bought one of those spinning augers. 
If you ever uh, hire a professional um, plumber, they come in like with heavy-duty equipment. It's like a spinning auger, so I bought one of those. So if you ever need to borrow one, you can ask. I have it. Uh, it's in my basement now. Uh, I use that thing. I put it into the toilet. I spun it, hand-spun it for a while, and nothing worked, and I was just about to give up. I, my wife was looking at me like, I told you so. And <laughs> I was about to call the plumber when I started to look at the auger, and I realized at the end of the auger was this bit. And I realized, I could put this on my power drill. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. So <laughs> I put this thing on the power drill, and I went to town. And as I did it, it was quick. I started the power drill, boom, 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 boom. And then I heard a whoosh. I was like, ooh, that's satisfying. Now, I tried to pull out the auger from my toilet. And it caught onto something, obviously. And uh, I reeled it back and pulled it more and more, but this time it wasn't coming out very easily. It, it took some pulling. And at the end of this auger, that was appearing from the depths, it was hooked on the end. There's a little hook on the end. There was a very expensive tube of cream that we've been missing and looking for <laughs> for a week. In that moment, all I could do was smile because one, I'd fix the problem. Two, I knew exactly which one of my four kids did it. <laughs> I knew, you guys know. It's like, you know which kid does this type of stuff. Um, he's not here right now, so <laughs> you'll see when, we, when he comes back. Uh, so if you know my family, you know exactly which kid it was too. So what's the point of that story? It's this. Just like my problem with the toilet, uh, we often look to fix whatever problem exists in our lives by facing, uh, uh, fixing the surface issue. Right? We look at the problem on the surface level and we're like, we got to change this one thing. When in fact, if we want to see significant change in our lives, we have to dig deeper. You have to address the core of the issue, or to say it another way, if you want to see true transformation in your life, if you want to see change actually take root you can't merely change your behaviors. You have to challenge your beliefs. I've been a Christian for a while. I've been around Christian community for a, long enough to realize what happens when we share about our brokenness in our lives in community groups, uh, small groups, whatever you guys have. We do this thing where we share about our sin or we confess different things and we say, oh, you've got an addiction? You should just install this software. It's, it's worked really well for me. Oh, you've got an anger problem. Well, you know what I do is I, I you know, walk away and I count to 20 or I, I scream in my pillow or, or, or do all these things and it works great for me. Oh, you got an anger, or you got, uh, you're feeling anxious. You know what? You probably need a break. Go on vacation. I know this really great spot down on the Cape. You should go out, uh, out there. Or I'll loan you some essential oils that I've been using to feel really calm. Or I've got this really cool app. You should download it. Try using it. It's really helped me. Right? We always go to these solutions and uh, slight tweaks in our daily life to see if that might fix the problem. But when confronted with the brokenness of our lives, our tendency, while it is to address the surface level behavior, that's not going to actually fix anything. We're getting undesirable results, so we think, let's change our behavior. Let's modify it. Maybe that will produce the result we want. Fletcher sort of alluded to it this morning, but there's a $12 billion industry out there 
selling self-help books, materials, conferences, apps, seminars, all of that. Why? Because human beings like us are convinced if we can just find that silver bullet, that little tweak in what we do, in our behavior, we'll get the results we want. But despite all that, what is growing in record numbers in our country and in our world? People that are depressed, more and more people that are experiencing disorders and stress and different things like that. There's $446 billion, last I Googled, that are spent on addressing problems of this nature. One writer said that unhappy people are convinced that the only way out of unhappiness is to spend their money on quick fixes that actually don't work. And he's right. The only way this self-help industry is propped up is it gives this false hope. If you just try this new thing, try this new method, then you'll be better. But what if real lasting change, what if true transformation doesn't come from changing your behavior? What if real lasting change comes from challenging your beliefs? That's what I want to explore with you today uh, because I think the single most influential thing in our lives, your life, the rudder that controls your life is, isn't what you do necessarily, your behavior, it's what you believe. One of my favorite quotes from an author, A.W. Tozer, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And he's right. Because what you believe matters in how you behave. Tim Chester, he's an author, he wrote this book, You Can Change, and he writes that behind every sin is a lie about God. Behind every sin is a lie about God. So the challenge to every one of us facing a sin issue or a challenge or an obstacle this morning is this. is not to ask, what am I doing wrong? Instead, we should ask the question, what am I not believing about God? What lie am I believing that's, not, that's bearing the fruit of sin in my life that I'm in bondage to? And it's only when we address those more foundational beliefs We'll actually begin to see the fruit of change. So this morning, I want to explore just one truth with you. It's a simple truth, and that truth is this. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. And you might think, okay, Dan, that's what you came here to tell me, because I believe that already. I'm going to check out for the next 20 minutes or so. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. I believe that. I got that. But really ask yourself. Do you believe that God is so great that you don't have to be in control? I'll be the first to confess, I believe it up here. I can tell you that God is great and probably don't have to be in control, but there are many times I'm reminded that this truth, God is great, has not made its 18-inch journey down to here, and I don't believe it. It hasn't taken root. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. Now, where do we see this in Scripture? We see this through God's words, uh, through his prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, you can kind of park there. Isaiah chapter 40 will be mostly in verses 12 to the end of the chapter. And if this part of the Bible is unfamiliar to you, let me just catch you up real briefly. God uses the prophet Isaiah to speak to his people who are in exile under the oppressive rule of Babylon. That just means that they've been kicked out of their home, 
They've been driven far away uh, by their enemies, and now they find themselves under this government that doesn't care about them at all. See, God warned before this, God warned Israel, hey, if you continue in your sin, if you continue to disobey me, turn your back to me, uh, plug your ears to my commands, then there will be the consequence, uh, there will be consequences to your sin. And now they're reaping those consequences now. God allowed Babylon to rule over his people in an act of judgment against them. And for the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, all you heard was the prophet Isaiah heaping judgment after judgment on the people of God for turning their hearts away from him. That's what basically the first 39 chapters are. Now consider how God's people were feeling while in exile, far away from from their home, far away from their comforts, um, everything they knew. If you had to sum up how they felt, you'd say they felt out of control. They didn't have anything familiar close to them. They were living in a land far, far away. They they were ruled by people taking advantage of them. They've they've been oppressed thus far. They're far from all the, the creature comforts of home. And most of all, spiritually, they must have felt abandoned by God. They would have been told that uh, they are God's people, but yet God seems so far away. How could God let this happen to us? Left for dead in a strange and foreign land. Imagine the dissonance you would have felt as a people of God who are supposed to be chosen by God, but now it seems like God is nowhere to be found. And so in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, God is reminding his people Uh, of the dire situation they find themselves in. And then there's a turning point here in uh, in, in the book in chapter 40. Starting here, and for the next 26 chapters of the, the book of Isaiah, God outlines his plans to comfort his people in the midst of chaos. In fact, that's why Isaiah starts chapter 40 with the first verse. There's a lot of judgment, 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 and then the first verse starts with God shouting, comfort, comfort my people. The interesting thing about God's plan to comfort his people is that it doesn't mean that he's going to take them out of exile, at least, you know, not in the moment. He doesn't promise some extra resources or armies to come and rescue them. He doesn't uh, say he's going to improve their accommodations. In fact, the plan isn't to change their circumstances at all. Yet he says, comfort, comfort my people. God's plan to comfort his people is to remind them who he is. That's right, God's antidote for when we're feeling out of control is for us to remember how great he is. That's what he's going to do in chapter 40. Now, let's be real. When you're in the pit of despair... You want solutions, right? You don't want to be like remembering how great somebody is. You want solutions. You want to be rescued. You want some kind of plan. And for God to say, just remember how great I am. That just seems like wavy hands, religiosity, magic, and like, what do you mean remember how great you are? That doesn't work for me. But that's how God plans to comfort us in the chaos. He says, remember how great I am. That's what he's going to say in in chapter 40. The reason why that is supposed to be the plan to comfort his people is because you got to remember who he's talking 
about? Who, who's talking to you? This is God. This isn't a fantasy. This isn't some uh, magical uh, you know, folk tale. This is God, the God of Israel, who has this past track record. And he says, the remedy for the chaos of life is me. Look to me. Remember who I am. So the natural question is, who is this God? We're going to take a look. Starting in verse 12. God begins to ask a series of questions in verse 12 to help us grasp how great he is and who this God is that says, comfort, comfort, my people. He says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Okay, do you know how much water there is in the world? A lot is true. That is a good answer. To give you an, an idea of how much water there is in the world, if all the Earth's water was poured onto these great United States of America, it would cover the entire country from coast to coast to a depth of 107 miles. That's a lot of water. If all the water, uh, all the Earth's water were to make a perfect spherical drop, which is a very satisfying picture to think about, um, the diameter of that perfect spherical drop is 860 miles wide, covering the distance between Chicago and D.C. Now, do you know what the hollow of your hand is? Can anyone just point to that? Where's the hollow of your hand? I love it. Everyone knows. Right here. This is the hollow of your hand. If you just cup your hand like this, right here, that's the hollow of your hand. How much water can fit into the hollow of your hand? Half a cup at most, a few tablespoons. Yet the scriptures say that all the waters of the earth fit into the hollow of God's hand. God is great. Isaiah also says, God marked off the heavens with a span. Verse 12, right? A span is the distance between the tip of your thumb and the tip of your pinky, right? It's the furthest distance that your hand can cover. Now, to give you some perspective, the average male has a span of nine inches. Anyone follow NBA? I know Fletcher does. But if you follow the NBA, you guys know of a, a guy named Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi Leonard arguably has the biggest hand, which is probably going to take a hit this draft because what's that guy's name? Yeah, Wembenyama. He's probably got bigger hands. But anyway... Um, Kawhi Leonard has a span of over 11 inches. It's a, he's got a big hand. Now, none of that matters because your hand, Kawhi Leonard's hand, last I measured, the universe is longer than about 11 inches, okay? In fact, the universe is not measured in inches at all. They don't even use miles. They use what? Light years. <laughs> what is a light year? I feel like we got scientists in the room. What's a light year? Basically, a distance to light travels in a year if there is a vacuum and all of that, right? How long is uh, a light year? Six trillion miles. Mind blown, right? That's awesome. I love that response. That's not even a, a number that we can wrap our minds around, so stay with me. God marks the heavens with his span. Now, how big is just the galaxy that we live in? 
From one end of the Milky Way to the other, the galaxy measures about 105,000 light years. One light year is six trillion miles, 105,000 of those. If that doesn't compute, that's the point, okay? That's just one galaxy in one universe, and God says, I've marked all of it with the span of my hand. I can palm the universe. That's crazy. No problem. The entire universe, all the galaxies in it, fits in the span of my hand. God is great. Now, we don't have time to talk about all the other things that he brings up, how the nations are insignificant as dust to him, like a dust on a scale, or how he holds every single star in the sky, verse 26. Read the rest of this, these verses sometime. They're fascinating. He keeps going and going, and he uh, shows you how great he is. So then in verse 25, God dares you to find a comparison. He says, to whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. See, God is flexing. He's just showing off. If God is who he says he is, then why do you despair? It's the question that God asks his people in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? If our God can hold every drop of water in the hollow of his hand, do you not believe he can lift you up out of any overwhelming situation? If he knows every star in the sky, and he's placed them there, and he holds them there, then why would you think for a second that he's forgotten about you? If God can measure the heavens with one hand, how in the world could you ever be too far away from God? Put yourself in the shoes of God's people in exile here. If the opposing nations are like dust to God, doesn't even register on the scale, why are you in despair? Do you think your, over, uh, your enemies might overwhelm God? God is making it abundantly clear to us, to them, there is no region in the universe too far away for God. There is no resource that he can't secure for us. There's nothing too big, too scary, too overwhelming uh, for God, which is why in any season of our life, Whatever the chaos, however big it is, however big the storm is, the truth that's going to anchor us, the comfort in that chaos, is that God is great. He's in control of all things, which means we don't have to be in control. Hear the words of God through his prophet once again. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? What likeness compares with him? Verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. City on a hill. The real, if you want to see real lasting change in your life, it doesn't come through changing your behaviors. Real change comes from challenging your beliefs. That's why God says in verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. 
Like, think about it. You can work tirelessly for how long? If you didn't sleep and you just worked continuously on whatever problem faces you, how long do you think you can go? Maybe 72 hours for, like, the, the true hard-working marathoners that just are just masochistic. Maybe 72 hours. You can probably get there with no sleep for 72 hours, but eventually what's going to happen to you? You will collapse in exhaustion. But God, our God, does not faint, does not grow weary. He's never too tired. He's never overcome. He's never overwhelmed. God is great. So city on a hill. You know what we're to do when we are feeling out of control? When life is chaotic, there's problems before us, there's things that we just can't seem to figure out. It's not to go get a, a new planner. It's going to help you plan better throughout the week. It's not to tidy up your to-do list. It's not to craft this foolproof plan that's going to work itself out to uh, perfection. It's not to get a rock-solid night of sleep. When we're feeling overwhelmed by our present circumstances, the real truth that's going to set us free in the midst of chaos is that God is great and I don't have to be in control because he has everything under control. And when we believe that with all our being and surrender, surrender to him, there's a promise given to us in verse 31 at the end. But they, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Your hope out of chaos isn't to clench your fists. Hold tighter. Do more. Muster up more energy. Your hope out of chaos begins with this patient surrender to a God who is great. That's the good news. The good news, city on a hill, is that if this God is so great, so powerful, that he hung the heavens in the sky and holds them there and uh, all the opposing nations are like a drop in a bucket to him. If he can measure the universe by the span of his hands, imagine the power this great God has and what he might do to anyone who rebels against him. Imagine what he might do. Actually, we don't even have to imagine. He tells us in verse 24 what his power is capable of. He says he could blow on us and we'd wither to bits. He could destroy us in a single breath. But the good news is that instead of treating us as our sins deserve, God uses that power to destroy the very thing that was set to destroy us. He takes on himself what we very much deserve. Jesus surrendered his life into the hands of his good father. He secured for us eternal life and gave it to us, though we did not deserve it. And let that good news be the comfort for you. God sent his only son to enter into our chaos so that he could once and for all demonstrate how in control he really is. On the cross, he silenced our enemy, Satan, forever. He conquered sin and death for good. And he has secured our eternal life. He's secured for me. He's secured it for you. So whatever circumstances or situations you find yourself in, today, tomorrow, 
however chaotic or out of control you feel right now, maybe later, let's remember that lasting change comes not from changing our behavior, but challenging our beliefs. Let's believe this truth together. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. Let's pray. Father, it's a simple truth, but a hard truth to believe. I pray that you would make this truth ring in our ears over and over again in the days to come. That you are indeed great. You're majestic. You are bigger and stronger. And help us believe that truth, not just cerebrally in our, in our brains, philosophically. Help us to build our lives on that truth. Help us to know that we don't have to be in control because you are. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.